Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. So, Ryan, your task today is to help save my marriage, okay? You, you up for this? I'm on it. Excellent. Okay, so the issue is that I make quick decisions when we go to the shops or I'm buying something, and Lorraine, my wife, who I've been married to for 40 years, um, well, nearly 40 years, um, is, um, it doesn't. She, you know, she'll order six bits of clothes over the internet and then send back five, and, and it drives me around the bend, and I drive her around the bend because I make quick decisions. So I don't think either was one is right or wrong, uh, but it's different. And therefore, let me stop you there, Colin. You're wrong. Uh, <laughs> what else can I help you with? <laughs> oh, thank you for that. You yeah. obviously got Lorraine's email saying to, <laughs> to, to mention that, did you? <laughs> I know where uh, and the smart bet is in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, it's worth noting that Lorraine makes very slow, deliberate decisions and yet decided to marry you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, only goes to Maybe prove we can that dig into making that slow decisions isn't right, is it? There you right. go. Uh, no, so this is uh, this is the topic that we wanted to talk about today: is, is how are these different ways that people make decisions? And um, you know, this this was one of the topics that got me really interested in research on consumers in the first place. A lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today um, is drawn from this really great book called The Adaptive Decision Maker. Um, published back in the, the late, no, early 90s. Um, and uh, it, it digs into this question of for a given set of information. So if I were to give you and Lorraine both the same like six options that were described on the same five attributes, you, you would think that you, know, you would both kind of use the same process yeah. to reach a decision, even if you arrived at different outcomes because you had different preferences. Um, but what these researchers started to dig into was all of the very different ways that even the same person could approach that set of information and process it in different ways to come up with very different outcomes, even if they had exactly the same preferences. Um, so that, that's all very abstract. Let me give you some some concrete uh, examples. I guess that's dependent upon the environment as well, is it? Absolutely. So the environment can have uh, a context. They, they broke it down into a number of different uh, reasons why people would choose one decision strategy over another. Um, and some of it has to do with kind of how important the decision is to you, how motivated are you, um, you know, how much time do you have, all these kinds of things will, will help determine how you make your decision. Um, let me give you an example of a couple of these strategies that are on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. Right. So um, one decision strategy that's been uh, researched and defined by these researchers uh, they called it the weighted additive decision rule, which just kind of rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? It does, yeah. yeah. Another, another uh, great bit of ac academic marketing. Yeah. Aren't, aren't we the best? <laughs> We're just the best at this. So the, the weighted additive rule, um, we can call it the rational decision rule, because this is what we should all be doing all the time. Basically what it says is that you look at each option – you consider all of the attributes of that option and decide how important each of those attributes are and then kind of come up with this 
weighted added score for that option. So you can almost think of it as utility from um, your old economics class. Like this option yeah. has a utility score of five and a half for me. And then you move on to the next option. You look at all the attributes and you come up with another score there based on your own weights. And the weights can be whatever you want them to be, but they should be consistent across options. This sounds to be something similar to what Lorraine's doing when she makes decisions, right? She's very thorough. She wants all the information. Sometimes that means you need to order the clothes into the house because you don't have all the information until you actually have the clothes on and can try them on and see how they fit. Apparently not. Apparently not. <laughs> Colin, we started with the premise that you're wrong. Get on board. Right? Yeah, I, I can see where I'm failing now. Um, okay, so that's one extreme, right? We we make decisions slowly, deliberatively. We really consider all the options. At the other extreme, we have something called uh, satisficing, which is a portmanteau, combination of two words, uh, for uh, satisfy and suffice. So we satisfy. And the idea there is we have some idea of kind of what's good enough on a couple of important attributes, and we look through options as they come to us, and we just stop whenever we hit the first one that's good enough. And see how these two different decision strategies would lead to different outcomes, even if you have the same preferences. If we hold yeah. the preferences constant. Because it may be that the, the optimal option, the best fit for you, the one with the highest utility score, is the like the sixth one that you evaluate. But the second one you evaluate is good enough on a couple of attributes, and so you would end up choosing different things. Doesn't it depend then on the, the the product or the service that you're getting? Because if something, and I guess it depends on scale to a certain extent, but I mean, I'm thinking if something's good enough, then I can see products that I would order that would I would could fit under that category, but. If I'm buying something more to do with a brand or to do with some, you know, status or whatever else, then it wouldn't be good enough. Does that make sense? So I think we can still accommodate that. What we would say then is that the attribute that has to be good enough on is the brand attribute. Right. right? And so you've got some threshold uh, and and brands that are below this threshold are just not good enough, and you're going to move on to the next. So let me Whereas, give you an example. Yeah, go ahead. So I bought a car a couple of years ago, and this is talking about Lorraine again. I bought a car a couple of years ago, and I wanted to buy a Cadillac Escalade. Mm -hmm. um, and Lorraine wouldn't let me spend that much money. <laughs> 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 so I ended up buying a Lincoln. Um, but it was good enough <laughs> in my book. So um, is, is that an example? I mean, it, so this would depend. I can't tell you from the outcome which decision strategy you used. Because I, I do want to get this back so I can still go and justify to Lorraine why I should go, why I should be trading in my Lincoln for the, for the Escalade. So anything Colin, you can you do to help, mate, is, is really good. Yeah, you don't pay me enough. In this I don't pay you at all. That's even better thing. So it, it, think about it in these terms. So you've got the Lincoln and you've got the Cadillac, 
Yeah. And they, they vary on all these different attributes. You know, one has more horsepower, one has more room on the inside. Uh, they're different brands. One brand is better, in your opinion, than the other. They cost different amounts. Yeah. In making that decision, you have to kind of weight all this, dis- all these attributes in terms of how important they are. Um, and, and then look at the differences in their performance. But you could have gone into buying a car by saying, all right, I'm going to, you know, I want one that's a reasonable brand and that costs below a certain price and that has a certain number of horsepower. And as long as the Lincoln was the met those criteria, like the Lincoln was good enough on the brand and it was a reasonable price and it had a reasonable horsepower, then you would have bought that car and stopped. Yeah. You wouldn't have even looked at the at Cadillac. Whereas if the Cadillac had been the one you looked at first, then that would have been the one that you bought. But I guess it depends on whether which of the criteria was the prime criteria. So it's the what and we we talked about this before in terms of um, psychographics and motivators. What's the prime motivator? Was it that I wanted a powerful car or was it I wanted to, you know, um, have a more prestigious car or something like that? Yes, you're exactly right. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. In general, people are less likely to use an easy, fast decision rule like satisficing for important purchases like buying a car. So Mm -hmm. um, because satisficing is easy, you're also more likely to make bad choices from the perspective of maximizing your own utility, your own happiness. So for more important decisions, usually we, we go towards more complicated decision rules like this weighted additive. So um, there, there are a whole bunch of these rules. There, there are like seven or eight. I'm not going to go through the, the list of them, uh, but they are in that book that I mentioned. Um, the way that the researchers did this, particularly um, in days before widespread computer technology, were just fascinating. They, they used all these intricate methods. Um, really a lot of fun if you're into this topic. Um, I, I will mention some headline findings. So they, they grouped decision rules into two broad categories. They said some decision rules are compensatory and some are non-compensatory. And the idea, in general, the non-compensatory rules are faster and easier and also more likely to result in like less great outcomes. Essentially, a non-compensatory decision rule means that if something is not good enough on some attribute that's important to you, you'll eliminate it from consideration. And it doesn't matter how good it is on everything else. Like right. if it's not good enough on this one thing, it's out. So my favorite example of non-compensatory decision-making comes from um, uh, Seinfeld. So the old Seinfeld sitcom. Yeah, Every right. week, Jerry Seinfeld would have a new girlfriend and they were all like the most beautiful women in the world. And, and many of them were just great on all these other dimensions. But kind of the, the running joke of the show is every week he would find some little problem with them. And then that would be enough to eliminate them. Like they would be gone. Yeah. Um, that was a non-compensatory decision rule. It didn't matter how great they were on other dimensions. If they ate their peas one at a time at dinner, that was it. Done. Right. Can't, uh, can't have uh, compensatory decision rules are those where 
we can make up for being bad on one dimension by being great on other dimensions. On another. Yeah. Okay. So it may not be the fastest computer, but it looks good. Or exactly. vice versa. Exactly. Whereas if it was a non-compensatory, it's like, oh, not fast enough, gone. Not going to even think about it anymore. So can you, again, I'm now trying to think again, practical implementation. How do you find that out if a customer is, well, I guess what they're, what the weighting is. So is it they like more into design or they're more into speed? Because thinking about it, just in that computer world, they're going to have to make those trade-offs all the time, aren't they? Because you can either have a really pretty computer uh, that's sleek and thin and blah, 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 or you can have a big chunky thing that is really powerful. Right, right power horse. Um, so there are a couple of ways of thinking about it. Uh, if you're a marketer and you want to figure out what kind of decision rule customers are going to use, you can try to think about you know these things like how important is this decision to the customer? Um, you know, if this is yeah. a, a big expense for them, then we should expect them on average to spend more time on making the decision, be more likely to make these compensatory decision um, decisions, um, spend more time on it. If they are rushed when they make the decision, if they are not an expert in the category, so if I know nothing about computers, it's going to be hard for me to implement a real rigorous decision rule. I'm going to use an easier one, right? I, I don't know how to evaluate this computer. It's kind of overwhelming, so I'm going to pick the one that's pretty. Um, so that's one way. We can try to anticipate uh, based on who the customer is and based on the decision setting, how is the customer going to weight this information? The other thing that you can anticipate is that in most purchases, um, I don't know if I want to say most purchases, in a lot of decisions that, that customers make where they start with a large number of options, they actually implement multiple rules at different stages. So if you want to buy a computer, there are literally you know tens of thousands of different types of computers out there that you can buy. Usually what we'll do is we'll use a fast, easy decision rule, one of these non-compensatory, to take that large set of computers and narrow it down to a smaller number, two or three, yeah. and then we'll switch over and use a more rigorous decision rule to make our final decision. So this is known as multi-stage decision-making. Um, so one of the insights of multi-stage decision-making is that, that we use non-compensatory, these easy decision rules first, narrow it down, get to the second. The other really interesting thing about non, uh, multi-stage decision-making is it turns out that on average, stuff that we use early on in these decision rules, we tend to not use later on. So if the way that we create, the way that we narrow down our computer selection is by saying, all right, well, we just want, I want fast computer. So I'm going to look through all these computers and just select the ones that are fast enough. Yeah. There's a good chance that in that second stage, we're not going to choose based on choosing the fastest of that set. Right. We've kind of already checked the speed box, and now we're going to look at other attributes. Those are going to be more important. So can you do me a favor? Yeah. Can you not tell Lorraine about multi-stage decision-making? Because that would drive <laughs> me around the bends. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. Well, I assume that your wife listens to all of our podcasts because she just can't get enough of listening to you opine oh, on things. I oh know my, my wife does. Oh my god, she does. I'm gonna. <laughs> does she really? <laughs> I'm gonna have to take all this back. If um, my if my wife had to choose another opportunity to hear me 
give my opinion about marketing stuff. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No. Why not let Colin and Ryan speak at your next conference? As you can hear, they're great communicators and can get over a message in a simple, inspiring, and humorous way. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. So, serious question then. Years and years ago, I did this uh, Myers-Briggs stuff, you know, personality yeah. traits. And one of the things it talked about personality traits was... Do you make quick decisions, you know, decisions that are black and white, or do you tend to look for all the options? In other words, take your time over a decision. Does that, does that apply here? So in other words, are there people who are, and again, I know I'm asking you this, uh, you know, nature and nurture question. Um, uh, does are there people that just make quicker decisions either because their brains work faster or because that's what they do and just other people that just much prefer to make slower decisions or what yes yes there is and there, there's research on this um there there are scales that you can take um you know myers-briggs i think ha- captures some of this there are others that are scale specific to decision making um where you can kind of diagnose yourself but most people can realize pretty quickly and and usually the labels that are given are are you a satisficer? So do you tend to make these kind of quick, easy decisions where you're just eliminating options and trying to get to something that's good enough? Right. Or are you a maximizer? Do you want absolutely the best thing? Um, you want to make the best decision in each case, uh, and so you need to take your time and make decisions. And yeah, they they've found reliably that some people tend to be one type of decision maker or another. Now. Everybody makes both types of decisions. Even if you've got a, a hardcore maximizer, you know, they're not spending 20 minutes trying to decide which uh, kind of cold cereal to have in the morning. Sure. And, uh, you know, a satisficer will still slow down and spend some time when they're trying to choose a house or a car to buy. But yes, in general, people do seem to have a preference for one style of decision making over another. Um, there's some research, and you can take this back to Lorraine if you want to. There's some research that suggests that um, maximizers often tend to make themselves miserable um, because they get too involved in the decision, and uh, and that can like kind of inhibit the enjoyment that they get out of the decision after they've made it. They're kind of always looking over their shoulder, wondering if there is a better option out there that they could have chosen, um, even and after that, they made their choice. Well, don't they call that also menu envy? We, we've yeah. got we've got friends, one particular friend that no matter what he orders uh, at a restaurant, he <laughs> would prefer to have something else when everybody else's food turns up. So um, maximizers on average will have much higher levels of buyer's remorse um, yeah. for that reason because they they want the best, they want the optimal thing out there. Um, you know, and and there are cases where that serves them very well, uh, but there are also cases where that that can make them slightly neurotic. So yeah. And I guess, again, thinking about it practically, the different products obviously have uh, must have different weighting. So buying post-it notes is neither here nor there. But buying a, a CRM system that costs $40 million is probably not a quick decision that you're going to make. Well, I mean, I agree in general. I, I personally have very strong opinions about post-it notes. Um, but, yeah, in general, I can see... Well, your example would, would, uh, and don't talk to me about colors on post-it notes for goodness sake 
Well, there's also various <laughs> levels of stickiness. Just yeah. sit down, Colin. We can we can have a chat about this if you'd like. Uh, uh, I can't wait. <laughs> Go uh, yes, no, you're absolutely right. If you're, if you're selling Post-it notes, on average, you should anticipate people are not spending a great deal of time on this. For, you know, the occasional oddball aside, it's not an important decision in the lives of most people. And so they're going to be using um, very easy, fast decision rules uh, to make that choice. If uh, somebody's deciding which hospital to to send their relative to for a particular type of surgery, you know, that may be a much more involved decision. And they're going to slow down and look at the options and do some research and so on and so forth. I guess that depends on whether you like your relative or not. <laughs> well, you'd still want to do the research then. It would just be the outcome that differs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Good. Also okay. sign these papers first. <laughs> That's right. All right. So let's let's bring this to a close. Any any last pearls of wisdom that you would give a marketeer when when thinking thinking about, you know, how to you know, the so my usual so what question. So yeah. what does this all mean? So uh, the reason that I got so excited about this when I was a student um, wasn't around each of these dis- different decision rules. As I mentioned, there are like seven or eight of them, and they all differ in their their particulars. And I found that kind of cool and, and nerdy, um, and I was excited about that. But the, the real insight, the real key to me was just the fact that there are different rules. Right. Yeah. That was the headline to me. If you are a marketer and you are trying to anticipate how your customers are going to make decisions, it's not enough to know who, what the competitive set is. Uh, you also need to give to, some consideration to the customer themselves. How important of a decision is this to them? Uh, if it's not important, they're probably going to be using a simpler, easier decision rule. And so something like being the most eye-grabbing might win the day. Um, yeah. Or having the you know the, the prettiest computer might might win the day for some segment of, of customers. On the other hand, um, if it's a m- much more involved purchase, if they care a lot about the category, if they're experts, you know all of these kind of characteristics, then we might anticipate a much more slow, rigorous, involved decision process. And the strategies that you use as a marketer to win on simple, easy heuristic decisions are not the same strategies you use to win um, for slow, deliberate decisions. So you you need to think about this. You don't need to know what all eight decision rules are uh, and be able to pass a quiz on them, but you should consider it. You should think about the, the, the breadth of, of decision rules people can apply sure. themselves and try to, try to anticipate that. And I, and I think the message for me is that it's, just comes under the, that heading again of understanding your customers at a much deeper level and not we should just probably add a subtitle to our podcast that yeah. says that yeah no, I, I say it every I time right. but it is yeah. the most important thing i mean it's the most important thing do you understand your customer yeah no absolutely and and you know particularly in business how they make a decision is quite important um so um so good stuff good good okay so um, th- thanks for listening, everybody. Um, if you've um, if you found this useful today, then please do tell a friend. Um, we've had a client um, midweek I spoke to who said to me that um, they actually have passed the podcast around 
uh, within their organization and are using this to try to gain some traction in their organization and treating it as a bit of free training as well. So uh, please do tell a friend. It helps us. Um, and I have to say, it just gives us more enjoyment to know that we're um, that we're touching more people. So um, thanks very much. Anything else, Ryan? Uh, thanks, everybody. We appreciate it. And I'll let you know if this is safe from a marriage or not, and I'll get back to you. Yeah, no, I think I'll uh, I think I'll hear about it one way or the other. You certainly will, <laughs> especially when Lorraine comes knocking at your door and saying, "Can she stay the night?" Yeah, yeah, I'm sure she'll be the one who's kicked out. Um, <laughs> all right, bye, Colin, and more importantly, bye, Lorraine. Cheers. <laughs> this has been the Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton, but it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.